Hi, I'm Tom Sherrington. And I'm Emma Turner. Welcome to our new show, Mind the Gap, Making Education Work Across the Globe, where we talk about closing gaps in global education through proven strategies and research-based practices. You'll hear our individual unique perspectives, as well as interviews with some of the most compelling authors and thinkers in the pre-K to 12 ecosystem. And now, enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mind the Gap, Making Education Work Across the Globe with me, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner. Hello. So Emma, we are celebrating our first anniversary. In fact, in, in true style, we missed it. <laughs> so we've, we just realised that we've been doing this for over a year and I think we're on to our 24th or 25th episode um, by the time this goes out. And that's pretty exciting and we, we're still doing it. It's been fun, hasn't it? It's been absolutely heaps of fun and happy anniversary, Tom, even though we missed it. And it's rather fitting that first anniversary is paper, seeing as we discuss books all the time. But yeah, we've had the, we've had a really great year discussing things with so many people from across the world. I've learned so much. We've had real opportunities to, to delve deep into kind of expert brains and, and get them to share their wisdom. So it's been an absolute blast. It's, it's been brilliant. Yeah, and, and we've, we've spoken to some people in the US like... Uh... Patrice Bain, which is a, a real joy, and, and Principal Cafeli, who's just an incredible character, uh, Sonia Thompson, and uh, just just so, so many people. Uh, and we're going to talk later about some of them, our most recent episodes. So we're going to carry on, and we're going to get better at trying to cue each other in. We always laugh about the fact that we never know when we're going to stop, but we do, we do our best. Uh, but in this particular episode, we're going to just talk to each other about some of the things that we've been thinking about, about recently and, and share some of our own thoughts. So, Emma... I'll start with you. What have you been thinking about recently? I've been thinking about feedback a lot based on a blog post that you wrote, Tom. I read I read your blog post and then I've been reading another book alongside it. And I was just interested in your thoughts in that post about written versus verbal feedback. I don't know whether you want to explain what uh, the post was about. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was saying that I feel like written feedback after a lesson is largely a waste of time. Uh, and I, I, I was thinking about this, that I used to do this as a head teacher and, and a senior leader. I'd go into some lessons, which were planned or not planned, but mainly planned, and talk to the, and sort of observe the lesson. And I'd have my laptop or a clipboard with me or something. And then the process was to sort of produce a report, which kind of evaluated that lesson and then I'd sometimes find that quite an onerous task and I wanted to do it well so I'd go home in the evening get my laptop open and I spent a couple of hours crafting these well-written um, feedback notes based on my scribbled notes to try to communicate to the teacher a nice balance of saying some nice things and giving them some pithy insightful things they might work on and sometimes I'd write that without even speaking to them at that time. I, I might then meet them. Sometimes the process was to even send them that by email and then meet them afterwards. And now I just think that was weird. Like, sort of, not only was it a massive workload thing for me, but I was thinking, what was it like to be that teacher receiving this long thing about, you know, half an hour of a lesson or maybe even a full lesson, but where they didn't even get a chance to tell me in their own words what they were trying to do, what they felt was going well, their sense of the issues they were struggling with in their own mind at the time. It's all like, I'm the knower, I'm the expert, I know stuff, let me tell you what I think. And to me, it just seems like the mo a perverse thing that I would do that without talking to the teacher first. 
So that's the first thing. And then the second step of that is, having now realised that, I even think that if we're going to have a conversation first, which seems entirely normal, who's the best person to write something down afterwards? <laughs> well, it isn't me. It's the teacher. It's like, well, good, we've had a discussion. We've come to some shared understanding. Why don't you just jot down the key things you think you're going to now do? And then that's job done. And, and my role has been to facilitate that conversation. So that's my thinking. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an embedded part of my practice for a long, long time that lesson observation reports were the things that leaders do. And now I just think it's an absolute nonsense. So what are you, what are you your take on that? I, I, I agree. Um, and it's interesting you say about the person, the other person taking the notes as well. Because when I was in headship, whenever we used to give feedback on lessons, I'd obviously have my notes, but we would, the person who was receiving the feedback as well would, would take notes and then we would sort of compare them and say, are we taking away the same, the same messages that we, we both agree on? But I was thinking of it more in the, in the grand scheme of things in terms of if you're a senior leader in a school, you're trying to build up that picture of usualness, aren't you? That's why you do your kind of lesson observations or learning walks is because you want to build up a picture of the usualness of that person's practice or the usualness of the practice across your school. And if you're only taking these tiny little snapshots of individual lessons, that's completely useless as well. It's like taking a Polaroid snap of something and saying that that's the entire representation of somebody's teaching career rather than like a family album approach of, you know, this is this is this month and this was that month. And, you know, this is the usual picture that you'd see. So I do think lesson observations and learning walks in their kind of historical context are of such limited use in terms of they just provide that snapshot. There's the whole power dynamic going on. There's the whole workload thing of, like you say, kind of documenting the narration of what you saw in this big extended like play script of what happened um and then that other person having to sort of sit meekly on the other side of it and say well okay because they were so focused on the actual teaching and learning they weren't necessarily seeing what you were seeing it's a complete different viewpoint so I do think that lesson observations and learning walks we're at a crossroads with them where I think that how they used to be used used to be formatted used to be structured mm. I don't think they're of any use going forward necessarily in terms I think, of... I think, I think with learning walks, which, which means when you walk around a lesson, I, I feel like if you've got a good process where teachers are involved in, a, in, a, in sort of coaching conversations or just, even if you don't call it that, but say uh, a process where when you're observed by somebody in a sort of formal way, you're, you sit down with them, talk about it, and that's part of a cycle. I do think leaders can walk around school all day long. In fact, they think they should, and you're just seeing typicality. I mean, I, I went to a school last week um, and I observed in nine different teachers. And I wouldn't use a, I've used those moments to feed back to those teachers because I felt like that was just my, my me getting a feel for the school. It's mm -hmm. my first day in the school. I'm going back there next month. But on that day, it was just getting a sense of things. And I, I learned quite a lot about the school and I spoke to the leaders. So that, that, that has value, definitely. And I'm yeah. seeing some of the challenges and all of that. It's where those people have, are having these lesson observations where it's set in the calendar. You know, somebody's coming in at 11 o'clock on the dot on that day and they're going to give you that feedback. And so as a teacher, you end up pouring all of your life resources into that one moment because you're so desperate to show your class and your own practice in, it, in its best light that it ends up becoming so highly, you know, the stakes are so high 
that it becomes completely unusual, not representative of your practice. And you might absolutely smash it out of the park and do the most wonderful teaching ever. But we've all also taught those lessons of which we shall never speak again. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing is that you don't you don't want to motivate people to have sort of massive peaks of practice as if you can sort of nail it all on the day. You're much better off trying to motivate people to sort of grind out high high quality routines. So let's look at this a little bit more. I feel like so that it's not that say people don't need feedback. So all the, you know, research around uh, a good professional development and any kind of, say, sports mm-hmm. coaching and so on. You know, athletes, performers, people need feedback because you can't always generate it from within because yeah. you're not always aware of all the things that are going on and you don't necessarily even have the expertise, the full, especially when you're beginning, to, to know all the possibilities. So it's the way it's done. So uh, this is the other thing. that it, It's not just some sort of moral... Um, thing about I don't think it's the right thing to do I just think it doesn't work very well so even if I thought it was fine uh, professionally to write a long report on someone it's just very it's just pragmatically it just it's a it's a waste of time because so little of the subtlety in my head of describing what I've seen translates into the teacher's head of what they think they then need to do next and that's the thing I found I mean, it's written about in literature, but it's it's definitely true from my experience that, like like this this school I was in recently, the character of the teachers was a massive factor when I discussed their teaching afterwards. So I, I was meeting them all afterwards to talk about their teaching. I wasn't there to give them feedback, and some of the teachers were kind of look a little bit glass half empty. You know, they were kind of problem this well the problem with that is yeah well you know I, that would be nice but we never that and then it was all everything was seemed difficult so i was having to think how do i crack them and i was sort of saying yeah yeah i know it's tough isn't it must be so hard but but there are you are doing quite a lot of really good stuff though so maybe if you just focus on that and sort of having to kind of get them on side with me a bit there was another another guy he was he was like i'll do this i'll do this i'll do this i'll do this he was like peppering me with suggestions i was thinking whoa 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 like hold hold it hold it you know just and those are those characters that's what's so great about teachers they're so individual and i love i love that but it does mean me crafting my feedback in my terms is totally pointless when the two different people are so different in their their mindset do you know what i mean that's a be- you couldn't have teed that up more beautifully tom for the segue into into this book which is Thanks for the feedback, the science and art of receiving feedback well, which was a recommendation by uh, or from Catherine Morgan and Abby Bayford, and Abby who we've had on previously, um, who recommended this read. I think Nimish has, has been dipping into this one as well. But it kind of flips the whole feedback dynamic onto, yes, it's important to give feedback well and to understand how to give feedback well, but actually... It's also about knowing how to receive feedback really effectively and really well and recognising why sometimes feedback that you receive is really quite ouchy <laughs> for one reason or another. Um, it, you know, it doesn't land properly. You don't think it's right. You just think it's, you know, it, it's not the right, it's not either not the right time or not the right thing or not from the right person. So it unpicks actually how to receive feedback really really well and why you feel the way you do sometimes when you receive feedback 
And I think that's hugely illuminating then for anybody who is giving feedback to have read this to actually say, you know, what might actually be going through this person's head and why? And what can I do to mitigate that to make my feedback so much more um, targeted and impactful? But I do think what you said, Tom, about conversation being so important is, is such a key factor of it. It's rather than this kind of transactional thing, there's your feedback, see you, there's your target, see you later. It's about that conversation between the feedback giver and the feedback receiver, but both understanding not only the different roles, but the kind of the different viewpoints, the, the different reasons for them giving the feedback in that way at that moment. So I just think it's a really interesting read and it's a, a brilliant recommendation from Catherine and Abby and I'm on my it, second read through now of it. Who's, who's the author against reminder me of that? The authors are Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen and they're of the Harvard Negotiation Project and they also co-authored the book Difficult Conversations. So they're very skilled in in the art of having those prickly conversations with people. I, I think I needed to read that book because I, I think I'm rubbish at receiving feedback. And I and people have told me that before. They're sort of scared to give me any because I don't react very well to it. Well, <laughs> I, I read it and and apparently there's three triggers for feedback if you if you receive it negatively. It's either it's something to do with truth, it's something to do with relationship, or it's something to do with your own identity. And I was reading it going, oh yeah. <laughs> That's so true. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I, have, I have a view. Of, I wrote, wrote a blog about, about feedback, about, say, a, a one-off events, because I, I, I feel like, in fact, last week I did an online um, conference keynote uh, to, a, to a conference in, in Asia, and uh, the, the, the organiser told all the, all the participants before I started talking to remind them to use their app to rate the, rate the session. <laughs> Because that's what they do. So I start off my, my talk by saying, um, I'm actually going to say something, which is that um, if, even though you've been asked to rate my session, that um, it won't make any difference because I'm never going to do this talk again. <laughs> and actually, I think it's kind of rude. I actually said this. I, I think it's kind of rude to to talk to some professionals and say you're going to judge me on the way I present my information because it doesn't really make any difference to anything. What really matters is whether six months down the line you've actually used any of this information um so that you've 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 had an impact on your children because a, a professional discussion we're having and if i was working with you over time and we had a relationship and you, i knew who you were and we trusted each other then i might be open to hearing your comments <laughs> but as a bunch of strangers i, I it kind of doesn't really matter to me what you say because um how can i possibly do anything with it so we had a whole conversation about feedback needs to be about the next time you do something it, it's no point giving people a review what's the point so it has to be in the cycle. Uh, other, so you can say, right, what are we going to do next? Because really that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? It's about, it's about actions, which is why I love my, my favourite go-to resource on feedback in teaching is, um, and I hold it up for the people watching on YouTube, this, this classic book, Leverage Leadership by Paul Bambrick Santoyo. I think it's so good. I, I come back to this chapter, chapter three, all the time. And he has this great way of framing the feedback. I know lots of schools use this. And there are a couple of things in there I'll focus on. One of them is the need to provide precise praise. And I, I get people to think about this. It's a really interesting thing to think about. Like when I'm when I about to talk to someone about anything, I, this is the thing I think about hardest. How can I say something good, which doesn't sound naff like, hey, that was really great, or I really loved that lesson, which doesn't really tell them anything except about my feelings. I, so you think I need to say something specific like, 
Hey, wasn't it fantastic the way Jennifer responded to those questions? You really got her to give you a really good answer. <laughs> and, and the discipline to say something like that, which is actually quite useful um, and more specific to the thing they're working on, is, is takes a bit of thought. And I, I really like that. Is that something that you do automatically? It, it's also in this book because they talk about data and they talk about um, emotional data and actual data and, and the things that you, like you just saying, oh, I loved it or I liked it. Um, that's the wrong thing to be focusing on. So it, it unpicks what we mean by data when we're looking at something, both in terms of impact, in terms of human emotion. It's, it's really interesting. And it talks about how to get, like you were saying, from that kind of generic thing right down to the really pinpointed, fine-grained detail of, of actually what you're trying to say. Because the other thing that it doesn't matter what you say, the person who's listening to it might still take away something completely different. And unless you've been so specific with that data, then then nothing's going to happen. Or you're going to get that kind of lethal mutation of the wrong thing happening yeah. with, oh, but Tom Sherrington said I needed to do that. <laughs> and you're like, no, I used to have this problem a lot with, with sort of very sort of bland um, uh, just affirmation. Someone comes to your office and, and they, they've got an idea and you want to say, uh, you want to encourage them to so say, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, that's that's interesting. You know, let's think that's something we should think about. And they they go back to their office and say, "Hey, Tom said I can go ahead with that whole project." <laughs> well, that's not what I said. That's what I want. That's what you wanted me to say, and that's what you heard me say. But I, I was just sort of not being negative about it. But I wasn't. And, and you realise that that's almost inevitable. So you have to rethink. The other yeah, fabric, Santoya yeah. thing I love is um, this idea of the action step. And, and for me, this language needs to be much. This is why I think teach teachers need to write their own because it's their action steps. So, and, and their action steps to solve a problem, which depersonalizes. So um, the problem in a lesson is that Michael doesn't know how to use the sentence structure that you've just been modeling. That's the problem. You might be working your socks off. I can't even really fault you for it because it's just hard to get Michael to do that. And anyone would find it hard, but it's still the problem. So the problem we still got is, how do we get Michael to be able to do what some of the other children can do? Let's focus on that. And that's the problem. And, and it's not about you being good or bad or effective or ineffective. It's about just, it's a reality of the room. It's complicated. And that, that to me is, is a real, sounds dumb now to me. They even admit this, but it's like a revelation that that's the way to approach this approach, the whole business rather than is this teacher good? And the other thing is you can, because you're dealing with young people and those young people change, uh, you know, across a year. And if you're teaching in secondary, you're going to see it teach multiple classes or in primary, you're going to be teaching multiple subjects during the day. What works really well in one particular context where you look like a great teacher will not work in another context and it will make you look like a less great teacher. So I think that mindset of actually saying what's in front of me that I need to solve and how can I attack that is a much healthier way of looking at developing your practice than thinking, am I good? Because the, the analogy that I always use with my early career teachers, especially when we're moving from initial teacher education through to being a newly qualified teacher, is that you're no longer the picture in the frame, you're the frame around the picture. As in when you're initially training, all eyes are on you. Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do the other? But actually when you move into being in your NQT year, it's not about you anymore necessarily. It's about the impact 
that you have on the children in the frame rather than you being in the frame to, to pass your initial year. So I, th I think that having that frame around the picture focus and thinking what problem is in my picture that I need to solve rather than I'm in the picture looking marvellous <laughs> is, a, is a kind of a, a useful way that, that I work with my early career teachers to think about it. You know, it's not you, it's what we can do to help solve the picture in the, to help solve the problem in the picture. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. So that's, that's interesting. We, that, that is a probably a good way to then to start talking about Abby, who we, we interviewed recently, wasn't it? So she she was, um, I mean, you know her, her more than me, but it was the first time I really spoken to her. And then we, we both did an event with her to launch this fantastic book, A Letter to My NQT Self. Is that the right title? Yeah, yeah. And um, and she, she was, she's an amazing uh, enthusiast for teacher development. And she said, here's has a really nice idea. And, and she read out some of the letters. And to people who aren't aware of the book, I mean, you, you know it better than I do. So tell people what the premise of, of her book was and so remind everyone. It was, it was a collection of letters from experienced, established, and in some cases, relatively newly qualified colleagues. Um, a collection of letters that they wish they could have had um, in their NQT year. So it's kind of like if you could go in a time machine and go and talk to your NQT self, what would you what would you want to say to them? Um, but it's collating those into one complete set, which could be used as you know, a lovely kind of gift entrance to the profession for somebody to kind of say we're all in it together. But also have this other layer of actually being a really useful tool for if you're going to do some kind of coaching conversations or mentoring conversations where if there's an issue or problem to solve in the picture, um, you could use these letters to really unpick and explore and support an early career colleague with a as a kind of a conversation opener. But all of the proceeds from the book are going to charity as well to support um uh, to support the, is it, what's, what's the helpline called, Tom? I've gone blank. Well, we have to put it in, in the notes underneath, I can't remember, but it's a, it's a helpline to support teachers who are in. Yeah, in. support teachers. I want to say, all I can think of is EduGive, which is your thing. <laughs> That's the one I've got in my mind. But no, Abby's book, I think it's it's doing great things out there. It's um, it's really, really popular with um, ITT cohorts, with mentors, with, with students. And it's just a delight to talk to her because like you say, she's completely committed to teacher development and people development. So not just teachers within her organisation, but everybody who works and contributes in their organisation. So yeah, absolutely love talking to Abby. And we also spoke to John and Johnny, didn't we, Tom? Yeah, so their episode was a, was, a, was a bit of a smash in terms of our ratings. And I think it's because you have two people who are, uh, you know, well-known for, you know, sort of putting forward a fairly strongly principled stance about how head teachers should behave, the sorts of schools that, um, that people ought to run. But they actually do follow through. And so that, their book, Putting Staff First, is, is just a really good summary of a whole ton of ideas about how to run a school around professional development and appraisal and all sorts of other things but where you you really are saying let's treat people well let's, let's treat them with with some kind of professional um kind of 
respect. But it goes beyond that. It, it's it's also about making the schools better for everyone, for the children, everything, and keeping staff motivated and, and so on. And there's so many great ideas in there. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and I can't remember Joffy got quite angry. He gets quite round up about other you know other head teachers in in a sort of locality that where you're aware that they kind of they compete with you. They they do that trash talking thing of we're saying we're better than than the local schools and or they do things like dumping children into the community that they've excluded and they take no responsibility for where they go and and those people do exist in the system yeah and i i think that's why so many people really love listening to john and johnny because they are such a voice of reason and warmth and calm and and just goodness basically i'm never knowingly more than six feet from a copy of putting stuff first because yes it's it's kind of all about ethical leadership and yes it's all about kind of treating people really well but actually within it are some really concrete beautiful proformers and steps and advice that leaders can actually take and implement in their schools tomorrow and the section on early career teaching is absolutely outstanding it's it's brilliant and i i referenced it today in some kind of um, in some mpqh work that we were doing and it's just an absolute gift of a book and i, and I think johnny's quite right to get cross on occasion because although teaching's great and and the leadership landscape is great there are like you say there are a few trash talkers and a few people doing underhand things in education and I think it's it's great that people like Johnny and John standing up and saying mm, hang on a minute <laughs> this isn't quite this isn't cricket is it no although you know I feel like that sense of a, a profession you know being generally run by principled people is something which I always find is the case um, and we might have disagreements about the sorts of things that we should do or, or different perspectives on that. But um, there is that sense of being a, a community of school, supporting a community of people and their children. And the more school leaders, I feel, act in that way, that they recognise that they're custodians of, of a kind of organisation that serves a, a whole community. I, I, I think that's better. And... And I, I think sometimes it's it's a PR thing, isn't it? I mean, it, it does, you know, it's painful, isn't it, when people sort of big up their inspection record and, and then using it in a competitive sense, because we still do have a, essentially a competitive marketplace approach to education where you want children to come to your school so it's full and you've got, you know, I don't know, a, a cohort of children which is going to be successful. And sometimes that literally means at the expense of the other schools. It's a bizarre scenario, but that is our system. And it is, it's sort of explicitly competitive. It's awful, really. It is, but doing what's right and doing what is easy, Tom, yeah. is not necessarily the same thing, is it? <laughs> I used to say this a lot, when I used to be the head of a selective school um, and people would say to me, um, why, you know, why would, in what ways would you say your school is better than such and such another school? And they would be, you'd be asked that question directly in front of a whole audience of people. And you have to say, well, I'm here sort of in the way you talk, I am trying to project the values of the schools and say, well, I wouldn't say the school is better than those schools. Loads of children do really well at those schools and they come out with incredible results. I felt felt to say that all the time. Um, but what I found ironically was that the more you do that, the more people <laughs> kind of still want to come to yours. It's almost like, you know, you don't have to come here if you don't want to. Um, <laughs> loads of, loads, there's loads of other good schools. And actually I, I, that's true, but it, it, it and I do think people need to um, be honest about that and saying and saying that supporting each other actually doesn't even do you any harm. It just doesn't. 
Yeah. So, so that that was good. I mean, and people obviously can see those episodes and it's Abby Bayford and, and um, Johnny Utley and, and John Tomset. That was absolutely fantastic. So, I mean, moving ahead, I mean, there's, I actually was going to say a little bit about this thing, which I'm sort of, by the time this goes out, I'll have published it, which is a blog called something about the, the dynamism of the, of the teaching community. I just think it's amazing. It's, it's buzzing. I just, I feel that it's so amazing. And recently I've been to a couple of places that are breaking out of, of my own lockdown. Um, spent two days in Wakefield uh, talking to teachers on one day and teaching assistants on the next day, a whole day training. And, and I went to a school in Leicester and I've spoken to whole groups of teachers across my area in North London, lots of, uh, sessions talking to primary head teachers about their professional learning and I just was totally blown away by by all of it just I just think wow aren't we so lucky we've got these fantastic principled enthusiastic knowledgeable people and despite all of it despite the lockdowns the the all of that and in secondary despite all the fact that teachers are acting like exam boards writing grades I just feel like there's a kind of enthusiasm and a buzz, which I just don't think we've had as good as it as this before. I really don't. And so that's, I, I mean, I, I don't know what you think about it, but that is definitely something I experience. I feel like we're in a, in a really good place at the moment and hopefully that will carry people through into the autumn term and beyond. I think it's the gathering of momentum around professional learning that's been the real shift. Um, and that managing to keep that momentum going during the pandemic, during lockdown, and now during all the myriad changes and pulls on people's time and the ridiculous things that schools are having, workloads that schools are having to deal with. I still think, like you say, there's this kind of flickering, bubbling excitement of, of this professional learning. And, and it's going right from kind of early career all the way through into leadership there's so many more people doing sort of masters in leadership there's so many people through like the apprenticeship levy there's so many people excited about the new early career framework so many schools or mats putting together really coherent programs of professional development people really excited about engaging with professional development and I think that the fact that we had to move online and people had to explore professional learning in different ways has kind of really reignited people's appetite for for learning and yes. I, I think I think the momentum is is gathering pace and I think that's really exciting really exciting yeah I feel like I think that is the key reason so Phil I feel like it's a number of things there's the kind of evidence engagement there's people there's the books the blogs the events the webinars and there's so many things like we're going to be speaking to Nimish Lad coming up soon so for me he's a classic example of someone who's the reason I asked him to, to, to get involved with that was because I just saw him as someone who, for me, captures the spirit of the whole profession. He's just totally enthusiastic and he's knowledgeable. And so he's writing a book about um, Arthur Shinomura's um, Marge um, brain, whole brain model of learning. And Dan Winningham, who is like the sort of absolute legend um, of cognitive science, has written the foreword for that book. So you've got Nimish and, and Dan uh, and in the same book and to me I just think that's just gold is that this is so here's that's an example so there's the evidence engagement and I feel what we've happened is that we've gone through this hump of people sort of saying hey there's research out there and what's the single Rosenshine's principles and and debating it or reacting against it and saying what is this to the point where we're kind of saying yeah we know it's there Let, let's just use it 
And that's what I think is exciting. We're, we're, we're past that initial awareness raising bit and quite a lot. And the same as with curriculum. So when our inspector at Ofsted is telling schools to sort of basically get their act together on curriculum, everyone goes into hyperdrive on ticking boxes and producing in, intense statements. And I feel like that initial yikes moment has passed. And now we're into a more mature kind of like, okay, let's just do this for the long term. And it's more steady, it's more mature, it's more intelligent. And again, that's exciting. So I, I just, and then people are talking about things like the early career framework and which is, is the fact that it's universal, like the fact that everyone's having to talk about it in, in across England is, means that it's kind of, it's bringing people into kind of a, a shared space of let's talk about this stuff. Well, how do we teach? Even if people have had good programs in the past, it's made people refresh their ideas. Oh, so I, all of these things, I just feel a part of the whole spirit. It's interesting you say about the UK teachers. I saw a tweet today with some of the early career walkthrough stuff and somebody had tweeted in America, every early career teacher in America, look at this. <laughs> there was a tweet, actually. And I'll have to see if I can find it. I'll send it to you, Tom. But it did not make me laugh because I was thinking, actually, it's not just the UK that's kind of feeling like this. I was on a call this morning with colleagues in it was Ottawa, Qatar, um, Australia all, and everybody was kind of on the same page in the same moment about this excitement about learning and reading and developing the profession and I think again with the move to online a lot of the time that's really opened up the kind of quality of conversation that we can have because it's bringing in a lot of more of this kind of international perspective as well to really hold up our own practice against what's happening in the world and compare and contrast and pull together all the really really strong bits so I think the sharing of practice from across the world again is it's partly what's reigniting the profession as well to say look it's really exciting what they do in this country or you know I found this from there and it's yeah interesting I do I do think so I mean it's like so there's so many different ways of accessing like this I think things like webinars and podcasts and, and okay again i see i think this is like an inevitable sort of hump people start as soon as there's quite a few podcasts um people will say oh god who's got time to listen to podcasts you think, well mate you don't need to listen to it like you don't no one's making you do it and as, as books oh too many books well okay but just read the ones you want to read but the fact is that more and more i go into schools and teachers have read that and they have access things and some of these books are not just uh, some ivory tower researcher writing about education as if they'd never been in the classroom. They're, they're, there's a kind of recognition that you need to relate the stuff to people who are doing the job. Anyway, so I just think it's good. And, and, I, and I'm not saying it's to, I mean, people will talk about things like paying conditions and workload and all those other factors, which I, I'm not even really referencing in saying this because those things will, you know, you compare on different, in different ways. It's just the spirit of it. And I do think the online community, sometimes people say it's like a bubble. But that's what I think I'm noticing is that when I go to places, there's just there's just more out there of people who are not on Twitter or whatever, who are then who are still coming into the kind of frame of talking about memory and learning and debating curriculum content, even if they've never been involved in a Twitter spat over it. <laughs> They're, they're thrashing this stuff out round the table. And I, I see that and I love it. I, I just think it's wonderful. Yeah. And I, I think that things like people doing all these masters and people doing the new um, you know, MPQs, the, it's all going to be permeating through um, the profession, which is which is really, really exciting. 
right right from early on right right from like the ITT uh, initial teacher training all the way through I think it's a brilliant time to be involved in in research and like you say there are other big problems rumbling along that will never go away <laughs> like yeah. paying conditions as as it's, it's sort of um you know in, in people's minds that you know, there's a big debate about the catch up and extra hours and, and who that who's going to do all that. But we just have to keep focusing on. I still feel there's so much mileage in great, great training, great curriculum design, following through on what we planned. And it's not about extras. It's about embedding and deepening the stuff we're already doing. Now, let, let's tell people, I think, to wrap up with this episode. You and I have to finish the project. What, what, what I love about this project is that um, it was something which I felt we needed, I needed to do with my walkthroughs buddy, Oliver. But then I asked you to do it. And so actually you've done all the work, <laughs> uh, and actually, which is great. So tell people what it is that you have just finished doing. Oh, uh, which I blithely originally said, oh, this would take me about an afternoon. And then I actually started doing it. Yeah, it's the, the early career framework, which is going to be the statutory entitlement for all early career teachers as of September for two years of training that they can access. So it's not an assessment tool. It's a statutory entitlement to training during the first two years of their career. And there are eight standards. And in these eight standards, there are things that they need to learn about. And then there are things that they need to learn how to do. And Tom quite rightly said, oh, it'd be you know, really interesting to map the walkthroughs against that you see how they match up. So I sat there with the early career framework and both copies of walkthroughs for a week or two, flicking through and matching them all up because um, I was already using them with all of my ITT and early career cohorts anyway. Um, but now they're all fully matched, um, walkthroughs one and walkthroughs two, matched against the eight standards within the early career framework. And Oliver has worked some kind of amazing magic and hyperlinked them all to PowerPoints and videos and workbooks and notes and handouts and things. So it's when's it going live, Tom? Um, well, I think by the time people are listening to this, it will already be there. So, yeah, so we, we made it. I mean, Oliver made the graphics side of it and I, I sat there and, and hyperlinked them all because I feel like <laughs> I had to do something. <laughs> but I have to say, I congrats, I mean, you, I think it was really interesting because this is, I think, like you say, it's statutory and ours is just a sort of uh, thing which we just wrote of literally with no contact. And I, I, I think what's interesting is that this is what showed you there's a kind of alignment here that mm. a totally different set of people wrote that early career framework document to, to me and Oliver. And yet the, the alignment is is high, even though it's not total, which tells you that there is a kind of consensus around things like behaviour management, um, research-informed teaching and professional standards, which is healthy, isn't it? I mean, it's not so aligned that it's like group, it's sort of, this is there's no scope for, for diver, diversity or diverse approaches. But it just shows that teaching isn't so kind of, unknown or undescribable that we'd all come up with a totally different set of ways of describing it. it that hasn't been the case has it no definitely not and it was it was really interesting to go through with kind of my primary hat on but also I don't know if I've ever told you this time I did a weird course where I trained in key stage two three so, so I was like went in with my primary hat on and then a very old dusty secondary hat on a little bit and I was actually thinking there is so much crossover here in terms of practice, both I could see this working in, you know, a year nine science lesson as much as I could see it working in a year two literacy mm -hmm. lesson. So it threw up as well the potential for conversation between uh, much more conversation 
cross phase as well about what we do um, for our children in terms of our provision and, and how we could potentially align that a little bit more across yeah. the year groups that we teach as well. So that was one interesting thing that I found out. But it was it also threw up the fact that there are some kind of Uber walkthroughs as well, the ones that just keep coming up again. I saw that list. Concepts and small steps. So when I was in the school in Leicester last week, um, one of the one of the sort of bits of the day I loved was in the early years going to the foundation. So you're in a sort of essentially like a kindergarten, um, but nursery or slash reception different different classes and in one of the classes i think it was the reception class i had to sort of play shop with these children it was on it was fantastic you know i had to i had to choose the flavor of ice cream i had to say which size cone i wanted and they were behind this shop which had all this sort of plastic stuff and they had to stick and they 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 had to do the language of the money how much it would cost they weren't adding up money but it was all pretend money and they had coins and giving me change. And there's a whole, and, and this was all something which they had described through sequencing concepts and small steps. And I just thought this was great. And um, there's so much thought going into it, especially when, if you looked around the room, like every other sort of group of three children was doing something completely different, all coordinated and kind of sort of low level coordinated. I just thought, wow, this is exhausting. I was tired just being in there for 10 minutes. <laughs> it is. Um, fascinating. <laughs> Foundation colleagues are very, very special and have the stamina, superhuman stamina. But it, yeah, it was a real pleasure, a real great opportunity to kind of cross match all of those walkthroughs. And if you are working with early career colleagues, there's a real, um, a real alignment now and something practical and concrete that you could give to kind of bring the early career framework statements to life to say, look, this is what it, this is what it looks like. You know, this is, this is what it sounds like. This is what it, how it's structured because um it can, it can be really quite difficult to articulate exactly what we mean by all of those statements so it was it was great to see that there was so much alignment between between the walkers and thank you tom for asking me to do it because it was it was i would say it was fun but it was it was really worthwhile <laughs> we've, we've and the walkthroughs team made available to anyone so it's, it's it's just on our website you can download it and for people who are part of our subscription there's a kind of more kind of animated version of it but so thank you very much. And um, so, yeah, so we, we've got some great guests coming up uh, soon going into the summer and which was, which was really great. Um, so I think with a year under our belts, Emma, we can, we, 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 we're due a celebration at some point. We'll have to get together. But um, thank you to everyone listening. Uh, thank you to listening to this episode. Thank you to Ross, our amazing producer, who is in the background all the time. And uh, see you, everybody, soon. Thank you. This is Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe thanks for listening to mind the gap we hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today for much more great content make sure to check out the video version of our show which includes additional segments and features visit edcircuit.com or go to youtube and subscribe to our channel mind the gap with tom and emma see you next time